Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 86, with Rich She and Jeremy Umansky from Koji Alchemy. You know, there's there's lots of, of really, really incredible things. I mean, early on, when Rich and I were first getting introduced and, and acquainted with each other, hearing that he was making amino paste, so something like miso, uh, out of cookie dough, I was like, what is going on here? This is crazy. And then he's like, yeah, I just use it as the salt replacement in a, in a chocolate chip cookie recipe. And it's so much better. And here's why, you know, because of the creation of these amino acids and, you know, some of these excess free sugars and all the different flavors and aromas that it, that it brings to the table. I was just like, wow, this is really, really cool. You know, so, so seeing, seeing a lot of Rich's early work was super inspiring. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. On the show this week, I have Chef Jeremy Umansky of Larder Delicatessen and Bakery in Cleveland, Ohio, and Rich Shi, the man behind the website and social media accounts, Our Cook Quest. Together, they're the co-authors of the book Koji Alchemy, which came out last year. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Rich and I have been talking all things food and cooking for 11 years now, and I've taken hands-on workshops with both Rich and Jeremy. We start with a little backstory about how they got into food and cooking, and how they started using koji and miso. We talk about some of the innovative uses of koji, and they even teased a couple of upcoming projects they have in the works. They also wanted to turn the tables and ask me a bunch of questions, so we talk a little bit about some of my favorite things to make. And I'm going to be doing a giveaway of their book, Koji Alchemy, so if you head over to my Instagram, which is at chefswithoutrestaurants, you'll find all the info on how to enter and win a copy of this fantastic book. And once again, I recently started a Patreon to help support the Chefs Without Restaurants organization and podcast. So if you love what I'm doing here, please check it out. You can go to patreon.com forward slash chefs without restaurants, or the link is in the show notes. I really appreciate the support. And now on with the show. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. I wanted to have you on the show for a little bit. I know a lot about what you guys are doing and can't wait to share it with my audience. So we're talking kind of all things miso, koji, fermentation, wherever it goes today, right? Like, let's just share some interesting stuff with the people. Sounds good to us. We're all about it. So like... Three minutes, like a little bit of your culinary backstories. I want to know, like, I'll start with you, Jeremy. Like, what are you doing and how did you get there? Like, how did you end up in food? Yeah, um, for me, I've more or less always been in food. Uh, One of my first paying jobs around the time of my bar mitzvah, my grandmother was a kosher caterer. um, And she said, hey, kid, in the kitchen, 
let's uh, let's get some stuff done. So, you know, for me, it's it's pretty much always been there. I grew up in a very, uh, you know, this Jewish upper Midwestern family, very food focused, um, you know, because it's, it's food and cultural identity. And it isn't just Jews. I mean, it's everybody around the world, but uh, definitely, you know, in Jewish families, that's a huge, huge concentration. So a lot of our individual identity is, is wound up in that. So growing up in that, it, it just made sense that I'd be working in food. Um, and, and I fell in love with it along the way, you know, various odd jobs throughout high school and this sort of thing, always in some sort of food-based business and eventually made the leap to, to go to culinary school. Uh, did that, met my beautiful wife there. She's um, uh, a pastry chef and a baker. We lived in New York state and city for a long time and eventually made our way, uh, at least for me, back to Cleveland, Allie's from Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, decided it was time to start up our own thing. Um, you know, and a huge driver was that the amount of instability in, in the restaurant industry. You know, if you're going to be a working chef, um, a, you know, there's always young guns who are, are, you know, stronger, quicker, faster, more current. Um, you know, so as you age as a chef, you know, there's always people who, who are going to be better than you and, and, you know, more suited for the task at hand. And, um, you know, the, the other aspect of that is just the general instability of, of se- certain sectors of the industry. So we decided having our own place would, would be, you know, the ultimate goal. And in uh, April of 2018, we opened up Larder Delicatessen and Bakery. It's it's been a fun ride. We've we've gotten a little bit of attention. We've been we were nominated for best new restaurant in America by the James Beard Foundation, and we were also nominated. Me, Allie, and our business partner Kenny is uh, best chef Great Lakes from the Beard Foundation. So, you know, we're doing something right for some people. So, uh, you know, but it boils down to we enjoy what we're doing. Um, we're having fun with it, and uh, you know, pandemic aside, things are are fairly well for us. So. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, that's that's kind of where my mind goes. Like, I've never wanted to have this gigantic, like, flagship restaurant that was just turning out hundreds of plates a day and and doing the newest hot thing. I mean, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But uh, and at forty five, I feel like that ship has definitely sailed for me. And moving on to different things. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I understand that completely. And and. You know, that's uh, at Larder. That's why we decided to take a, a couple specific approaches. And one of them being that uh, we would change our menu every day. And we had to do n- numerous things to be able to ensure that we could do that. And one of the big things that we decided on was our relationship with our suppliers. Um, you know, so there's something, there's just some broad liners we order from them where we get, you know, fryer oil and, you know, big sacks of flour and that sort of thing. But uh, when it comes to like meat and produce and cheese and and the bulk of the ingredients that we use and serve, uh, we set up a system with our purveyors where uh, we don't actually really order from them. Uh, we say, we've got X amount of dollars to spend with you this week. Just bring us whatever you have. And it's been a bit of a chef's dream because you never know what you're going to get. So you never know what you're going to make. Uh, you know, your creativity is always first and foremost. And then, you know, from a business standpoint, it creates these amazing win-win partnerships with our suppliers. So 
you know, a farmer who maybe decided to try their luck on a specific crop and, and it isn't moving at the farmer's market or the broader markets, like they can bring it to us for a good price. Uh, we win on that. Uh, they win on moving the product. It gets used up. It gets put out there. It's highly seasonal. It's nutrient dense. It's local. So it's been been a really, really, really fun ride so far. That's such a innovative way to do it. And, you know, you definitely have to be creative to be able to pull that off. But seeing what you put out, I know you can do it. I can't wait. I got to come check you out sometime there. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's also important to pr- point out to you, like you're you're only as good as the people you're working with. You know, and that's also a realization that Rich and I came to, you know, deciding to, to write Koji Alchemy. I felt I couldn't do it by myself. Rich felt he couldn't do it by himself. And, uh, you know, every every person, every individual brings such unique things, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And, and it's important to always, you know, highlight and work together as a team. Well, Rich, what's your background? Because you're not, you haven't been a chef in the restaurant world. So... Can you talk a little bit about your experience and how you got into food? Absolutely. And um, I have to say officially that I am not a chef. Um, I would never claim to be um, in terms of the traditional sense of uh, someone who has put their heart and soul into understanding a craft. And I feel like, you know, definitely have to respect that. Uh, I would say that I've always been this sort of adventurous and voracious eater since, since birth. Uh, it's all, it's been fueled by pretty much by my mom's cooking. We're Taiwanese. Uh, so she would make meals that were, you know, she, she'd have at least a few dishes plus the soup for dinner every day. Uh, and you know, we'd have a savory breakfast of, of rice porridge, uh, with, you know, all sorts of pickled things and unctuous things that people wouldn't normally see. And, I got to learn that pretty quickly when I when I started um, hanging out with my friends and talking to them about what they were eating and understanding that landscape. Uh, so I feel like you know I've had this sort of uh, interesting culinary uh, experience as I grew up <clears throat> because just from uh, two completely different perspectives on two you know two sides of two uh, different sides of the world, uh, and it allowed me to build a palate that has a uh, sort of functioned me well throughout throughout the years. I mean, I I'm pretty much not afraid to eat anything or try anything or as you've seen in terms of our interactions especially early on in Twitter where we would just be throwing out ideas about like all sorts of crazy things that you know, people we were either inspired by one person starting with some sort of, you know, idea about putting these things together that nobody really thinks about. And then we just went on the fly and just started creating these awesome ideas and things would just develop and and blossom in different ways. And that was so cool to me to see that in the beginning, especially when, you know, I think, you know, in terms of cooking, I'd always watch my mom cook and do things that she'd asked me to do and was completely intrigued by the end product, but didn't really have a full understanding of like what it took because I didn't necessarily do it myself. Um, you know, I could do simple things uh, in terms of cooking an egg or, you know, making some some noodles. But I didn't have a true interest until I got out of college uh, and I realized how expensive it would be to be a, a sort of adventurous eater. So then I just sort of sort of started tinkering, uh, started watching PBS, you know, Julio Child, Jack Pepin, you know, Martin Yang. 
uh, all, the, all those people who sort of laid the groundwork. Um, and, uh, you know, I started reading, you know, Cook's Illustrated uh, and just get fundamentals. And through that, I had this uh, sort of idea that I really wanted to understand the people behind the food. So I just started reaching out to people on social media and, and meeting them and just hanging out in restaurants, you know, volunteering to just, you know, hang out in the kitchen and do some things and talk about ideas. Uh, and I think one of the things that really rung true to me in terms of how welcoming people who are in the hospitality industry are, especially in restaurants, I mean, if you show true interest, they'll teach you anything. And it's such a great thing in such an awesome environment that I wanted to nurture that in, in my own way, from my own experience, and show people that people in, in that line of work are giving their heart and souls to, to feed people and make them smile. Uh, and I wanted to be a part of that in, in terms of being, um, you know, not only my own, my own culinary ventures, but to be an advocate of, of people who are working really hard uh, for, for not much compensation. And all that they do is they keep working hard. And I want, I wanted the world to see that. And I wanted the world to see what sort of we could do together to support each other and to have that understanding because it's not just, you know, you pay for, you pay whatever amount for a meal. It's, it's that somebody really cares to, to, to nourish you. And I feel like that's pretty much why I'm on this culinary journey is to build this awareness of, of food and, and how delicious it is, but how wonderful these hearts and souls are together and what we can do together. When did you start our cook quest? How long has that been now? Like with the blogging and the Twitter and stuff? I mean, it has to be at least like 10 years, <clears throat> right? I think it's on the order of 10 years. I don't remember exactly, but sort of the, the moment I started was when um, my cousin got tickets to the first um, Harvard um, science and cooking seminar with Ferran Adria. And I got, <laughs> I got to ask one of the, the two questions that were asked of him. And I asked, I asked him if, um, if there was one perfect ingredient that he would never do anything to. Uh, and that went through this whole sort of arc of a, a story of, uh, it basically depends on the time, the place, the company, uh, the environment, all these other factors. And it was funny because I remember uh, Chef Andres was, he looked at me after I asked, asked the question, he was like, you know what you've done, right? <laughs> and it was just like this huge, like it was this big long arc of a story that was super cool to see him get really into. Uh, and that that lit the fire for me in terms of, you know, what was possible. And he was always, you know, he's always been somebody who has done things that, you know, made people think about the very simplistic like ideas, but doing things that were more possible than what you had thought with very simple concepts and making something that people believe to be impossible possible. And I think that's a lot of sort of the attitude I take with things, uh, especially with just, you know, it seems like sometimes when I'm creating things that it doesn't make sense at all. And it's built on this, this fact that I have all these experiences that tell me through my flavor and texture brain that they'll work. And sometimes they don't, but 
it all comes down to just trying it and being adventurous and, and having fun with it. And I think sometimes when people are cooking, they, they have this, you know, especially beginners, they have, they feel like they have this pressure of being successful uh, when they first start making one thing from a recipe and to kind of step back and have this context of, Hey, you know, maybe a chef wrote this recipe and has, you know, tens of years of experience and maybe the recipe isn't perfect, but they understand how the recipe works. Whereas when you yourself have no idea how the recipe works and you're trying it and then you feel like a failure when you do it the first time, it doesn't make sense. And I think people need to have this context in, in, in cooking sometimes is that it's not as simple as, as following a recipe. Well, and I think sometimes not having the experience, like you, you didn't come up in a restaurant setting and all that. So you don't maybe know what rules you can and can't break, right? Like like me, I went to school, to culinary school for savory, so I didn't really learn pastry. So I start, like, now I make a lot of desserts because I have to in my business. And one of my best friends is a pastry chef, and he's always stunned by, like, what I do because, like, he was taught <laughs> that's not what you could do or should do. But, like, I don't really know the rules, so I just make it up. And I think, you know, I think there's something great with that. <clears throat> uh, and just, you know, maybe you set out to make X and you weren't successful in making that, but maybe you made something better or different or just delicious, you know, and kind of letting go and being able to just create stuff. I mean, you and I have been talking for years and it really could get weird sometimes, but I love those early Twitter days where you just posted an idea out there. I would just post some dumb shit, not even knowing <laughs> it was something I could execute or wanted to. And like, you'd be the first one to like chime in and be like, oh, I like that. But like, what if you did this? Or what if you added that? Uh, and I really love that. And I wish, you know, there was more of that today, but just kind of building on each other's ideas. And that's something you've continued to do for a while. But Rich, for you, I've seen an evolution where like now, I think you're kind of known as like the Miso Koji guy, but I, you know, I, when you started out, I don't remember seeing that. You were kind of like doing everything. So to both of you guys, how did you get into this very specific thing? For, for me specifically, it was this intrigue of a new ingredient to me on its functionality and how uh, multifaceted and uh, full of depth it, it is. Uh, and you know, using sort of my engineering brain in terms of my professional background, I always break down um, recipes or, or processes or methods of cooking into, you know, the basic components of understanding. And with the idea that you could take any ingredient and create sugar and umami, you know, amino acids, as well as, you know, esters through fats and this understanding that I could develop that from any base that I wanted to was phenomenal to me. I mean, I often talk about how you can use koji to apply to any ingredient to create its own marinade or its own accentuate its own flavors from its own components. And how beautiful is that? You don't have to, you know, go through this crazy understanding of all these other ingredients to accentuate the actual flavor of the base ingredient that it does it by itself. It does it with very little work. I mean, in a matter of hours in some cases or overnight. And, and it's it was crazy to me that, you know, it could be, if there was, you know, enough understanding out there of what the possibilities are, we often talk about how prolific this ingredient will be 
in terms of applying it as, you know, if you think about the context of salt and what salt does and what, what the possibilities are there for all sorts of preparations. I mean, it's in everything, anything you cook. I mean, even in sweet things, this, this is the, the other side of what's possible through umami and creating its own sugars. Um, that's, that has no bounds. And that's sort of the, the crux of why I got so intrigued by it. And outside of that, I've always loved making delicious, delicious food in the, I mean, in the most straightforward way possible. And this gives you that tool. Koji is amazing in that way. And, you know, it's only become fairly recent that people are super hyped about it. And we just wanted to announce it to the world. I mean, I mean whenever we had an idea, you know, back 10 years ago or uh, talking about certain things that were really exciting to us, all we wanted to do was tell other people to do it because it was so cool. And we wanted people to just do it. And that that was the extension of where I was going. I mean, I still make other, I still make all sorts of other things, but it's just that this ended up being what people responded to really well. And I feel like people needed to know about it in the same way that people needed to know about, you know, some of the other things that we were playing with early on. It just was a matter of, you know, the context and, and the excitement um, that continues to grow. Well, how about you, Jeremy? How do you get into this stuff? Yeah, for me, I kind of I came at it from a different angle than Rich, uh, with a, a similar end goal. For me, I'm a I'm a very fungi centered individual. Uh, my early formative years, going to culinary school and everything, I, I fell in love with foraging and wild plants and wild mushrooms, and uh, eventually led me to be become an amateur mycologist and and um, uh, got a license from the state of Michigan through the Department of Agriculture as a wild mushroom expert and. Uh, so this this kind of fungi centric view um, and then learning about and meeting a fungi that uh, was so powerful, so intimate, so loving and did so much work for us. I was just smitten right away. You know, I, I've been fermenting and making charcuterie and, and working the, the focus of my career has been working with these preserved foods. And and as Rich touched on to be able to have something that, that for someone who, who cures and preserves and, and everything, there's two things you need. You need sugar and salt, you know, base sugar to spur fermentation and, and salt keeps things safe and flavorful. And to find an organism that could create base sugars in a very, very short period of time without having to add anything extra to it, you know, supplemental sugars or these sorts of things, was just beyond fascinating to me. And, you know, deeper studies divulged into, wow, like it was domesticated, it evolved a certain way, and then it was domesticated. And we've kind of, I guess, more or less through domestication, bent it to our will um, to allow, allow us to, to re-benefit from it. And on the flip side of that coin is the organism is plenty happy to do this for us um, because all its basic needs are being met. So, um, that whole process of understanding the domestication, uh, which led to its, you know, its its codified uses in various cultures, and then seeing that it is a fungi, those were all the things that really, really drew me in at first. It was just fantastic that within hours, literally, I could watch this fungi live its whole life cycle, where 
in the wild and working with these wild mushrooms that, you know, we eat and the other ones that I study, their life cycles can be months or years long. Uh, whereas this, we, we go from spore to spore, you know, from starting to end, uh, the, you know, the beginning of the next generation uh, in under two days uh, was just absolutely fascinating. And then you have all the delicious byproduct and result of that. It's just the icing on the cake. So uh, it's just an incredibly captivating, bewitching organism and can do so much for us. I think, you know, there's so, so many lessons too for the greater context of who we are, why we're here, where we're going that, you know, can be, be divulged by, by this fungi too. And, and, you know, now with modern exploration and starting to look at things off world and starting to rehab things on our world. And, and Koji has a role in all of these things. And it's just so, so incredibly fascinating. What are some really cool applications? I mean, I do think there's still a large population of people who hear miso and they think of like miso soup in a, uh, an Asian restaurant. And they have no idea beyond that, you know, what, Miso and even koji. I think most people don't even know what koji is. I've seen some really cool stuff like making charcuterie with it. Um, so what do you guys think are some really interesting applications for those things? My mind, when I'm asked this question, my mind often wanders to things that are not food. Things such as bioremediation, uh, using these organisms to uh, help out farmers to break down like uh, the end of the season, right? You've had all these plants grow, you harvested everything you can off of them, but then there's all this material left over. And, you know, some farmers till that back into the soil, others burn it, there's different things, but to be able to use uh, a fungi like Koji or one of its relatives to do that work for you without us putting additional input in, such as fossil fuels and petrochemical and that sort of thing, I find is beyond fascinating. Uh, even things going back to uh, the 1960s and 70s, uh, when it was first discovered that Koji produces these enzymes called lipases, they break down fats into their constituent parts. Well, somebody who was working on developing laundry detergent was like, this could be great for getting the grease out of your, your clothes. Like you get an oil stain or something on your shirt, whatever. This actually works to do that. So I think like a lot of those applications, uh, something that was domesticated with an intent of feeding us showed us these broader possibilities of what it could do uh, is what has always been most fascinating to me. So, um, you know, as I said, I kind of turn away from food for some of those things, because in my mind, anything that's been done with Koji and food is just a very, very logical sequence of steps. Um, and just like any, any art form or, or craft, um, we always continually build on the work, the groundwork done by those before us. So uh, taking these next steps was, in, in my opinion, inevitable. It was going to happen eventually. Uh, it just was a matter of putting the right pieces together in the right times and places uh, for some of these innovations in cuisine to happen. So you know, there's, there's lots of, of really, really incredible things. I mean, early on when Rich and I were first getting introduced and, and acquainted with each other, hearing that he was making amino paste. So something like miso, uh, out of cookie dough, I was like, what is going on here? This is crazy. And then he's like, yeah, I just use it as the salt replacement in a, in a chocolate chip cookie recipe. And it's so much better. And here's why. 
Now, because of the creation of these amino acids and, you know, some of these excess free sugars and all the different flavors and aromas that it, that it brings to the table, I was just like, wow, this is really, really cool. You know, so, so seeing, seeing a lot of Rich's early work was super inspiring. I think from my perspective is, as we, we touched on before, is that you can create these flavors from any base ingredient. Um, the one thing that we often talk about as a touch point is that if you were to make uh, something from the ingredients of soy sauce, you would never be able to achieve it with these microbes. I mean, think about it. It's soybeans, toasted cracked wheat, salt, and water. Uh, if you had these, if you had these ingredients as a chef, it would be very difficult to make something. It, it would be impossible to make something as delicious as soy sauce. If you cook that, Rich, you would end up with like a disgusting glop <laughs> of crap. Well, the other thing is, you know, maybe you'd age it, right? And maybe you would eventually uh, come up with soy sauce, right? Because those are the things that sort of happen in these contexts of making things more delicious, in terms of you know, the idea of, you know, hanging vegetables or aging vegetables or, or just, you know, sun drying fruit, you know, leaving them to, to, to the elements in a way, or, or when you, when you sort of, when you prepare any meat, you have these, these processes to help with accentuating the, the flavors through this, this landscape of, you know, microbes that come along the way naturally to do these things that are amazing to us that help break them down. But because we're, we're just using their their leveraging of their you know basically their digestion uh, to be able to create these flavors. So the context of using koji is that you are just using this digestion to make things more delicious, more accessible to us nutritionally, and and more tasty. So when you think of anything that you want to make more delicious, you just add koji to it. I mean, it's as simple as a lot of the things in terms of the terminology initially. When Jeremy was working with Amazake, it was just, hey, if you're making Amazake, which is basically a, a porridge that's added with, with koji, uh, such that it will create more sugars through the natural breakdown, that you could use any any starch substrate or any liquid. So if you just add, you know, one of the things that early on I had heard um, from David Chang was that people often describe koji as smelling like grapefruit. And at one point in time, I was like, well, I'm, I've got some grapefruit here, so I'll just take some grapefruit juice and make some amazake. So I just, you know, juiced some grapefruits, added some koji, and it became this amazing uh, medium that could power so many things in terms of, you know, making a syrup or, or a sorbet. Like all of these things that sort of operate together with the understanding that you're using this ingredient to create things that are more delicious than itself. One of the things that I discovered early on is that if you have, you know, less than ripe fruits is that you can, can just compress some koji on it and let it sit, you know, overnight, pull it out. And you've basically macerated it and create created like a more delicious sugary fruit that was lackluster. And these are the same sorts of things you can do with fruit scraps or vegetable scraps to accentuate them such that you can create, you know, sort of a whole usage of things that you couldn't unlock before. Because without these enzymes, you can't get these flavors. I mean, as you all know, culinarily with aged steaks, I mean, Jeremy has done, you know, a full study with the folks at Certified Angus Beef on being able to create, you know, aged flavors in the matter, in a matter of a very small percentage of the time. 
that has an equivalency. And if we think about how quickly we can turn these sorts of things around to make things more delicious and nutritious, it's, it's mind blowing what's possible. I mean, more people need to be doing this and there's just no equivalent right now. Well, and the, and the wonderful thing is too, is, is, you know, kind of going back to this groundwork and these foundations of the people before us, like we often get questions at larder, like, wow, like vegetable charcuterie, like where, where did this come from? This is nuts. You have like, you know, shriveled moldy vegetables and they taste like meat. And it's like, well, you know, the, the framework for that was laid previously. Like people have been treating vegetables and putting them through the method and technique behind various charcuterie processes for a long time already. And we look at in parts of France with Charentate melons, where they would literally let them sit on a shelf till there was mold growing on the outside before they would then cut them and eat them and use them because some of those molds went in and released, you know, some of these lipases into, into, um, you know, the skin of the fruit and made them more fragrant and aromatic and thus they tasted better. And we look in Japan, the making a hoshigaki, you know, you're, you're taking this fruit. Uh, it definitely cannot be eaten as the way it, the way it is, but you peel it, you massage it, you hang it, you let it dry. And like, you get this product that's absolutely incredible. And, you know, parts of China with bundles, bundles of mustard greens that are, you know, tied up, hung in a, hung in a drafty place for a while to dry out and kind of wilt. And then they're fermented and, you know, like these techniques and processes have been out there. So it was just for us, you know, as we were working with Koji, we realized that Koji in a lot of aspects, in a lot of ways could do some of these things faster. It could do them better. It could give us greater control over these processes because of how the mold worked. And that was just completely mind-blowing, I think, to both of us. Well, I have questions about, you know, this is starting to pick up steam. I'm seeing a lot more chefs working with this. What are some safety concerns and what are you seeing? You know, Jeremy, you have a place. What health department, I guess, issues are there? Much like charcuterie and things like that. I know of chefs who have like backroom hidden places where they're hanging meats. You know, is this something... What are they looking for, like HACCP plan kind of things? Yeah, you know, it. so a, it, it, it's a very broad question. So A, it, it all depends on the jurisdiction. Um, you know, it depends where you are and what they're going to ask for and also what they know and they're aware of, uh, you know, with, with any given circumstance. So, you know, we, we always recommend that A, safety is first and foremost, like that's, with anything you do, right? Like whether you're a skateboarder or, you know, you play tennis or what it like, be safe, like do what you've got to do to keep your body safe and those around you safe. So that's, that's the first and, and foremost thing, you know, from there, you know, your local jurisdiction may say, if you're going to do this, you, you do need HACCPs and just as they do for sushi rice and that sort of thing. Um, you know, the good thing is, is there's a few food safety consultants around the country that are already starting to do work with this and understand it. So it's, it's, you know, it may be a, a little expensive, but you know, it's definitely worth it to get those things done. Um, should you, you know, want and need to, you know, some of the things too, you know, as much as we've tested and we've developed and, and, you know, worked on some of these techniques, you know, there's still this huge kind of linchpin of, verifiable scientific study. All right. So this is something that's very, very expensive and takes a long time. In some cases, multiple years. 
Um, and that is consistently recreating these things in laboratory conditions where people can analyze them to the nth degree and say, here's exactly what's happening along the whole way. Uh, even though, you know, things like safety and efficacy have been proved via other means, we don't necessarily understand the data behind it. So these are things that are ongoing. And, you know, I'm hoping one day there's there's a, enough money thrown at this. And, and you know, for some of these things, it's it's going to be literally cost, you know, approaching millions of dollars uh, for some of these longer term explorations. But, you know, up until then, you know, be open, have good conversations with your local jurisdiction, uh, let them know what you want to do and see what they say about doing it and what you have to do. Because in different places, they're going to say different things. In some places, they may say, as long as nobody gets sick and you're logging and, and explaining what you're doing, like we're fine. Other places say might say without like this verifiable um, you know, scientific study, you can't do anything. So it's just going to, it really is going to depend on where you are and how you do it. But, you know, first and foremost, you know, basic food safety has always got to be in place. Like don't cross contaminate, wash your hands, sterilize things like do these things that you were trained to do and that you understand why you have to do them. And, you know, so far we've heard of virtually no incidents. Um, and, you know, also keep in mind, there's a lot, lot of precedent for working with this organism. It was domesticated roughly 10,000 years ago. Uh, and many cultures have been making many foods with it for a long period of time. So there, as much as we quote unquote, don't know, there is that much more that we do know about it and its safety and its uses and ingredients. So, um, you know, being able to put that out there and communicate that effectively to different jurisdictional officials is really, really important too. Yeah. I just know that, you know, it's like the fermentation thing and then the foraging thing. And there's a lot of people who, I don't know, I kind of worry sometimes when you know that like the chef is just like an amateur forager and there's some people who just go out and pick some stuff and put it out in their restaurants. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I most of the places I eat at, I trust the chef and what's going on. But I was just wondering from a legal standpoint, I wonder what percentage of people are actually talking about what they're doing as opposed to just kind of doing it. Yeah. And, you know, the more the use of these ingredients and the creation of the foods from them, um, you know, catches on and the more people that are doing it, more and more conversations about this are going to happen. And, and that's, that's another big hurdle that has to happen too, is <clears throat> the jurisdictional community and the culinary community need to all be on the same page. Whereas often, you know, and, and no fault to the inspectors and this stuff themselves, but our current food safety laws are based on science that is, it's 2021, roughly a hundred years old at this point. And we've learned a hell of a lot since then and done a hell of a lot since then. So uh, we kind of need to reform and catch up and start having these open dialogues. And that's that's one thing I think that we're we're kind of severely missing in a lot of cases right now. You know, a big thing that would help out with that would be broad centralization, um, you know, of what these laws are in place to keep our food safe and how we have to operate. You know, and, and for different sectors of the industry, I think that means different things because what applies in a industrial food factory isn't going to apply in a chef driven concept. The, the approach, the source of everything is so different, even though both are creating food, um, you know, the, the things have to be addressed. But to be a chef in New York and be a chef in L.A. and then in Austin and then up, 
up in, in Madison and have, you know, one area say it's okay to do something and another say it's not. And, and, and another say, well, we're not sure. And another say, we're not sure, do it. If there's a problem, we'll let you know. Like that is what, what is one of the, the biggest hurdles right now. Yeah, I live um, in like an area where the Department of Health is super strict, like not even from that standpoint, but for like what I want to do, just pop ups. Like if I want to go and cook at someone else's restaurant, they want me to have this like portable HACCP plan. They they want to see it tied into conjunction of an event. Uh, I'm not allowed to advertise on social media that I'm doing like a pop up at a place because that's like an illegal underground restaurant. Yet if I go like 15 miles down the road into another county, they don't care, you know, so it's it's just so hard. And I don't think you even know all the time if you're doing something on the up and up because there's like 40 questions you have to ask. So yeah, I totally see where that is. And I I don't think any restaurant in my county would be allowed to do this if they asked the question if they were allowed. Yeah. And and there is, I think, an area where um, us as culinary professionals and the organizations that represent us too you know, things like the Independent Restaurant Coalition, the James Beard Foundation, the National Restaurant Association, all the state associations, this needs to be a cohesive conversation amongst all these groups with, you know, the government. And that is one thing that we're not seeing. So, you know, as many issues as we're seeing in restaurants with, you know, sexism, racism, drug use, like all these things, like, yes, this is as important as all these things and needs to be included like in these conversations too. So I hope in the years to come that it is the problem with it is food safety isn't sexy, you know, where these other things are. And and a lot of these other issues, uh, you know, a lot of us as individuals can directly relate to them. Whereas food safety is this kind of glowing thing, this authoritative thing that we all try to do our best to comply with or, you know, make sure that we're not getting in trouble for something we didn't know about. And it, it just needs to be at the forefront of, of the conversation. I think one of the things that we often bring up in terms of the context is that if there wasn't fermentation, we wouldn't be here today alive. So there's that context of, hey, this was a method that was developed so we could preserve food and and survive. Uh, and now it has this stigma attached to it for, you know, all sorts of reasons. But if we step back and look at the bigger picture and say, hey, um, we wouldn't be alive today without fermentation, then, then then we should be able to sort of bring it back to the context of what what we do as human beings and, and enjoy as human beings. There's no rebuttal to that, right? That the response to that is, oh, that is right. And there's so many of these foods and so many cultures and so many places in the world that still rely on fermented foods. Now our, 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 the backing behind them is maybe shifted a little bit to, from the act of preservation and sustenance to pleasure, but that doesn't, uh, you know, cheapen, um, you know, the food or anything like that. So, you know, the, the correct course of action is saying like, yes, this is so true. So many people have done it for so long let's put some energy and effort into normalizing this. Don't keep it in the back room. Don't scapegoat it. Don't villainize the people creating it um, and lay the groundwork and, and uh, foundation for people to be able to do this 
en masse, safely, approachable, easy, and not feel intimidated by it. Because that's the biggest thing that that is, is uh, you know, messing with this whole situation right now is the, the feeling of intimidation of like, oh, some brewer cat's going to roll in here and shut down my business. Like that, that is not, not the mentality we need to have as culinary professionals. And on the side of the, the bureaucrats, they should not be in that position where they're like our way or the highway, you know, like we, we all need to work together is basically what it comes down to. Well, I've taken workshops with both of you guys. Maybe you guys should go on the road and do uh, hands-on workshops for Department of Health uh, supervisors and people working in government who are making these regulations. I think that would be a good time. You guys should start some KojiCon uh, geared exclusively for the people making the regulations. I think you're onto something, Chris. I, Absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think you just, I think you just hit the the nail on the head. Well, I mean, I do think people are scared of things they don't know, right? And, you know, like when I, Rich, when I first took your workshop, I really didn't have a good idea. Like I had cooked with miso. I hadn't ever seen koji. And I think once you get in a room and you, you know, have this stuff in your hands, you see it in front of you, you talk to someone who's an expert. Just from taking a couple hour longs workshops with you guys, you, I came out having a much better idea of what I was doing. And I think if more people uh, could actually talk to you guys, ask questions, have it be interactive. So... I don't know. I was just kind of spitballing here, but maybe that's something something that would work. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been thinking about the possibilities of being able to advocate for this sort of work. It's just a matter of how how do we how do we get enough parties interested in, in the sort of you know national or global sense uh, to create this this awareness that allows people to operate as they should. I mean. You know, we we often go to somebody's house that has, you know, somebody who has this the skill set, whether it be a beer maker, a winemaker, or somebody who's, you know, pulling some sauerkraut out of their basement, or has, you know, shot their own animal and hung it. Uh, and we leave it to the responsibility of understanding that people know what they're doing. And they're not going to feed you food that's going to make you sick. I mean, I think it comes down to also doing it yourself and getting comfortable because, you know, there was a point in time when I saw stuff on the, that was growing on the top of my ferments. And I was like, what's that? I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's okay. But I think, you know, in the sense of, you know, having red otter fermentation and reached out to Sandor in those days or anybody else who was working in that context and asking the question and saying, hey, like, is this worth eating? Like, did I do something wrong? And in most cases, it was just like, well, that's part of the process. You you didn't monitor it as well as you should have or covered it, right? Well, you can just scrape it off and throw it away. Uh, and there are these contexts of, you know, when you talk about, you know, the process of making your own meiju, there's, you know, there's all this weird stuff that grows on it. And the recommendation from people who do it traditionally is just scrape it off get as much as you can and then just put, put in some salty water and make your ganjang. So there are these contexts of understanding that there are things that are going to go wrong and there's a point of recovery and there's a point of not recovery. And you yourself, in terms of your uh, innate abilities to understand that something is bad, is very strong. I mean, you don't want to eat something that smells like crap or, or is, that you have fear of. 
like when you have that situation, it's always safe to just throw it out. Cause I mean, you, it's, it's a better investment of the ingredients not to make yourself sick and use your innate abilities of, ew, that's gross. I'm not going to eat that. Of course, with us, like that's not necessarily context <laughs> sometimes where we're just like, it's fish sauce. Of course, it's going to smell like junk, <laughs> but just use your senses. And that's what's kept you alive up till today. So, or people who, who have the sense to tell you that it's not good for you as a kid, right? It's like, oh, I want to eat some sand. Well, maybe it doesn't taste good. Maybe you shouldn't eat sand. I, I, and I think, Rich, on that point too, like we, if we look at incidents of uh, foodborne illness and disease caused by, by pathogens associated with food, most of the cases are from cross-contamination, from people not washing their hands correctly, and from the use of um, a raw ingredient for fresh eating. Uh, so for example, you know, in, in recent years, we've seen scallions and spinach and bagged salad mixes and that sort of thing. Uh, we've seen, um, you know, ground meat that wasn't handled properly and someone didn't cook the burger the proper way. So, um, you know, when it comes to the realm of these preserves and fermented foods, we don't see, you know, these mass sickenings and these mass poisonings. Um, so, and I think kind of that has to be part of the conversation also. Have you guys had any epic failures? Like, is there some thing that you guys have been chasing and really, want to make work and just can't do it or or we're really surprised that something didn't work out can you think of anything um i i yeah so there's always failures along the way and uh a lot of them are you know early on in your exploration like rich kind of pointed on like oh maybe you didn't contain this fermented or preserved food properly like you didn't put the you know some of them need oxygen others don't maybe maybe you did the opposite thing in that given situation um, you know, and you had to get rid of it. But as, um, you know, an individual's working knowledge with these foods uh, starts to grow and your familiarity with them starts to grow, the, the concept of failure changes drastically because it goes from it not being successful for its intended use to it being successful for something else, you know, uh, maybe you're making a fermented pickle with koji and you didn't realize its enzymatic action would turn that pickle to mush. You know, you look at that on the surface and yes, that's a failure. Now you've got like a bucket of cucumber puree, but um, the liquid from that may be absolutely delicious and, you know, be something that you could poach fish in. Or now you've saved yourself a buttload of time because you were going to turn those pickles into relish you know, the, the mold did it for you ahead of time. You don't have to do any, any physical work to get there at that point. So it's more an issue of being able to look at all the possibilities for any given outcome with these foods. And once you start to do that, your rate of success compared to your, your rate of failure, you know, it changes dramatically. So, um, you know, and there's plenty of times, you know, you make something and you're like, Oh, this definitely wasn't as good as I expected it was going to be, or it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. And just based on that experience and the data you glean from that, you can then work to fine tune it, um, you know, and, and get the desired end result. And along the way, you have all these wonderful, happy accidents. 
Yeah, no, definitely. That's kind of what we're touching on earlier is sometimes you just connect the dots in a weird way. You didn't intentionally set out to go there, but it just happened to work out. So I'm interested, what, what have you, you know, you're, you're doing these great pop-ups and, and, you know, cooking all this wonderful food. How, how has Koji changed what you're doing and, and the foods that you're creating? What is, what has that done for you? So I've most just been messing around at home. So I haven't started incorporating it into any dinners I've done. Cause again, like I touched on with the whole, I feel like I'm a little bit under the microscope here and people are always looking at what I'm doing and I didn't want it to be like a way to, I don't know, put my business at risk, but I play a lot at home. I'm still very new to doing it myself. Like I've just done a very tiny bit and I'm more likely working with other chefs in collaboration on that and letting them take the lead. I love using it. I mean, we have so many great producers. Like, you know, I buy white rose miso when I want something cool. Um, I just had them on the podcast and that's going to be coming out soon. And for me, it's, it's almost easier. Like, I think you have to figure out where your time is best spent. And um, for me, it's like a fun project, but it gets to take on so much more time than I think I have to do. But again, you can save a lot of time using Koji. So I've really been interested in like the fast aging of meats, I think is what's been super helpful to me. So I'm more inclined to do that than to make a huge batch of miso to use for something. Because again, I think you can buy amazing misos right now. I keep going through the Noma guide to fermentation and looking at like what the next project is going to be or looking through your books and thinking, what am I going to tackle? So admittedly, not as much time as I would have liked to. It's something I love reading about kind of messing around, but I'm more likely going to take someone else's product. So still, still novice on that end. Wait, but, but using that product from somebody else is like just as good because whereas before, you know, you, you brought up, you know, people associate miso with miso soup. Um, and how many different dishes have you used it in now? I do a buttercream for a banana cake, which is amazing. And I take the white rose miso. I mean, they change their stuff all the time, but they had a Sea Island red pea miso and then making that into a buttercream and then going to H Mart and getting some like different varieties of bananas and making this really rad banana cake with that. And then spreading that buttercream on there, I think is amazing. And it's like, you know, there's, I would love supporting local producers and people making small batch you know, phenomenal products. So I would rather buy their product. It saves me tons of hours and I can still then make this amazing product. And I also don't have to deal with any perceived issues with anything I'm doing, you know, safety wise. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's great. And it, it just goes to show too, like how many levels of entry they are with working with these foods, you know, um, just because you're not growing Koji and not starting at the beginning doesn't like cheapen or making the food less interesting or less delicious or anything like you're still, you know, going for those umami drivers and like those base sugars and everything that's still so wonderful about what Koji does and, and you're using them just as they should be. So like that's, that in itself is fantastic. Yeah. I think I probably have six different kinds of miso paste in my fridge at home. And I'm just always, you know, like you're making pancakes. It's like, Oh, could I put like a little teaspoon in my pancakes and what kind would be best and go from there and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Well, if you guys could shadow anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, Rich, you go first, because I'm going to have to think about this. Do they have to be alive? 
Um, it's yeah. like, I mean, like, it, like who would you, who would you really love to kind of just get on? If you were, if you were going to go do a workshop for a day with someone and kind of pick their brain and follow them around, who would that be? So I've, I've spent time with my friend, John Hutt, uh, who's a chef and, um, a culinarian and, um, sort of this historian. I mean, he's, he's, his brain is crazy. Awesome. In terms of what he creates and what he does. Uh, I would I would love to hang out with him. He's just got such a wealth of knowledge, and I rarely meet somebody who has encyclopedic knowledge about subjects and is able to apply them practically and also teach people practically. So I'd love to hang out with him. I mean, we have we have ideas on projects to work on together, but uh, he would be at this point in time top on my list just because of what he recently presented at KojiCon, which totally blew my mind and melt made me feel sort of inadequate about my understanding of my own heritage, <laughs> which, which is, which, you know, is one of those things that, you know, you're always sort of driving towards is learning more and being better about understanding uh, where you come from. Uh, and to be enlightened in that way was, was really indescribable. Yeah. This is, this is, this is a tough one. I think currently, like people whose work that I'm enamored with, I, I think probably the person I'd I'd want to like shadow and study under the most would probably be Misty Norris down in Texas. Um, the food she's creating and how she's creating it and the team that she has down there, it's just um, I like every time I think about about her food, I I start to salivate. Um, and I'm I'm just so inspired by what she's doing and how she's doing it. I think just to be able to sit down with her, pick her brain, talk to her, I, I, that, that's that's probably where I'd be. Yeah, I had like a five minute conversation with her up at uh, Philly Chef Conference. I think the year that you were there, she popped in and out. And I was like, yeah, that's someone who I'd love to just pick her brain because she's doing some really interesting stuff. I've never even been to Texas. So I have this whole list of places across the state that I want to go to. And that's one of them for sure. Just let me know. I, I have a lot of friends there that I can hook you up with that I visited. It's it's a super cool spot. To, you would love it there. It's such a melting pot there too. You know, there's there's people from so many different cultures that have found that part of of the United States um, and started to call it home. So uh, you know the 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 wide influence and and you know all these different culinary viewpoints. It's it's really fantastic to see how all these things have melded. I mean, you know, we often look at, or at least people outside the U S look at, you know, cuisine in America is like one unified thing. And um, just as we, you know, here ethnocentrically look at, Oh, Chinese food as just this one thing. And it, it, it's not. And I think Texas is one of the parts of the United States right now that is really, really shining on its own as it's its own, you know, with its own unique identifiable cuisines. Uh, so it's, it's super exciting. And the stuff that Missy does is just, like I said, I always salivate just thinking about it. Do you guys have any big projects you're working on either individually or collectively? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're always big projects. Yeah. Anything you can talk about? Rich and I are starting to write more together so there's that on the horizon we're not that's sure. exciting yeah we're not sure what it is or what it's going to look like yet but it, it's looking like something so that's you know 
there, there's um, eventually going to be some sort of follow-up to Koji Alchemy that, that we're working on. Um, you didn't give us everything off the bat, just a little taste. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it. it here's the thing. It, cuisine goes, as, as universal as Rich said, with, you know, Koji being um, compared to salt, as universal as it is, there's so much more out there, too. And it, Koji can be used in conjunction with so many things. So um, that's kind of like the next evolutionary phase. And and there's there's all these, you know, esoteric and philosophical aspects to it that we didn't, we just kind of touched the tip of the iceberg on in, in Koji alchemy and, and, you know, other methods and techniques that um, can be used in harmony with it and in conjunction with it in different ways. So uh, that's a, a lot of the things that we want to start looking at and, uh, you know, addressing food waste and, you know, various modes of, of food preservation to, to make your, your food more delicious and uh, more enjoyable and those sorts of things. So uh, we, we really want to kind of hit on, hit on some of those and, and also food as a unifier. You know, we, we all have these very intense individual cultural identities stamped onto the things that we make. And we want to use that as a conversation uh, piece for unification. Uh, with people all over the world. So that's another big thing that, that we're going to really be focusing on is how these foods, these makes, these ingredients and the techniques behind them. Yes, they give us our own identities and a lot of stand apart, you know, with our individualism, but at the same time, they can be used to bring us together more. Uh, and we really, really want to focus on that. Uh, I, th I think one of the things that we've always been interested in is being able to educate and help people and we're, we're, we're working in the sense of being able to create these, this level of a help and education center to move forward. I mean, it's always sort of been uh, on my mind on how we move forward in, in supporting our communities and, and the people who are, who are in need. And, you know, this is sort of an extension of that is this level of sharing of, and community uh, to be able to resource people who, who need help and need food and uh, we have we have a lot of tools to be able to feed people and bring food that is would normally be wasted, thrown out, composted, uh, and back into the into the circle of nutrition is huge. And you know, there's a lot of value in in what's possible of resourcing people, empowering people to make their own food and make it deliciously. I mean, we have this amazing tool called Koji and fermentation that has fed people since since we've needed to feed ourselves and to empower people in you know said you know these locations where people refer to them as food deserts or you know just the fact that somebody needs to eat something and can't get access to it um, fermentation is a wonderful way to do that and doesn't require a whole lot of resources and we want to be able to create an initiative to get there i think that's amazing because you know so much of the conversation is focused on i think like high-end dining or innovative restaurants, but I think there are very practical uses for this. Jeremy, I remember you did, is it like a matzo ball miso or something that, uh, and it kind of came out of just like you had this stuff sitting around in the walk-in and you didn't want it to go to waste. And like, how do I use this up? Like, I love the idea of doing things like that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we actually um, <clears throat> just used a whole bunch of it the other day, making matzo ball soup. It's, it's great. It's like this, this mother of matzo ball that keeps, <laughs> keeps going, 
you know, who, who knows, maybe it'll be, it'll be decades old at one point, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, it kind of enlightening people to these, these aspects of food production and, and how things, um, it's not so black and white with this is good and this is bad, like things transform and there's ways to do it safely, um, is, is one of the big focuses. So, you know, I, I think too, there's three big things that I want to be looking to, you know, and the pandemic has put a lot of these things on hold. Um, cause you know, some of these projects we got started and, and there's just been, we're at a stopping point for now. Um, but, but dairy applications, coffee and chocolate, uh, are, are a big focus going forward, uh, with some of these, uh, with Koji and some of the techniques behind it, you know, and I, I think there's something we can only say a little bit about, but, uh, Rich and I have been, uh, working with the, um, uh, commercial appliance maker wearing, and uh, there's some cool product development going on, uh, dealing with Koji and other molds. And, and you know, hopefully we're going to see that, you know, goal is to see that hitting the market at, at the end of this year. So uh, there's something exciting to look forward to. We were really were not allowed to say much more than that at this point. But, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's, uh, that's thrilling and exciting. I uh, can't wait to see what that ends up being. Well, what do you guys, what have, I mean... I was going to say, what haven't we talked about? What do you want to kind of share with everyone that maybe we haven't touched on yet? I think one of the important things is, you know, uh, you recognizing early on when I was doing these sort of culinary adventures, when sort of nobody knew who I was or what what in general we were doing. And uh, it was just sort of this uh, core crew of people just, you know, hanging out and exchanging ideas on Twitter and just seeing what's possible, you know, what, what sort of in, inspired you to, to do this type of work that, you know, we've been doing for, I mean, I checked back in, it was like almost 11 years now that we started hanging out and, and just bouncing these, these ideas that nobody else was, was, was doing in, in, in that sense. Um, I think there were a lot of things that are happening in fine dining that weren't as open, but we were just like, Hey, why don't we just slap some things together and see what's up? Uh, tell us about your, your sort of foray into that. And, and, um, you know, your, I guess your, your growth since then and, and why, like what, what inspired you to do that? Yeah. Well, I've never been interested in like quote unquote, like normal food or mainstream food. Like I'm, I think I'm a creative person, you know, I'm someone who does photography. I paint somewhat, I do a lot of writing and just, I always wanted to create something different. Like I'm not interested in making a lasagna. I mean, yeah, like I'll make it for my family, but I always wanted to try to push the boundaries a little bit. Um, I did feel like I was in a creative slump, you know, like 11 years ago or so. And my company had always offered money for continuing ed and I never used it. And then randomly, like one day I was on the internet and I found this guy, Dave Arnold and Nils Noren were doing a, a workshop at FCI or, you know, whatever it was called then. Um, and it was like a couple thousand dollars. And I said to my boss, like, I've never used any of this money. Could I go up to New York City and take this class? It was on hydrocolloids, which I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I had to convince my boss, like how I was going to use this at work. I was working at a retirement community. I'm like, well, I don't know, like, I'll figure it out. And I, I feel like back then I still didn't even have this knowledge of what was going on in the world because the like social media was still super new. You know, we're talking 11 years ago. Like I didn't know really what was going on at, you know, like what was Renee Redzepi? Like people didn't really know. 
So anyway, I went and took this course and Dave just like, it was like mind blowing. And you know, you know, Dave, but like way back then he's like, oh, you know, not only the class, but it's like, well, I learned this technique through ideas and food. Do you know ideas and food? It's like, no. He's like, you got to get follow this blog. Like they're doing amazing things. It's like, oh, well, you also need to, you know, check out these people. Do you know them? No. So he gave me like this list of all these people. And I didn't even have Twitter at the time. He's like, well, you got to get on Twitter. So Dave convinced me to sign up for Twitter, get an account. He gave me a list of like these people to follow. And it was just like, my eyes had been opened to this thing I had never seen, heard of. And all of a sudden the world got so smaller. But I found that the the fringe culinary community, I can call it that, right? Like they weren't the mainstream. It wasn't like I wasn't following like Mario Batali or people like that. It was these people who weren't household names, but doing like really cool, interesting shit in the food world. I was really intrigued by that. And I just went deep down that rabbit hole of like, who are these people doing this interesting stuff? And more importantly, who are the people who want to talk about it and not just like put out tweets and then move on? Who wants to talk for like two hours online, you know, back and forth about these weird food ideas? Um, And you were one of them. And I have no idea how I found you or you found me, but you were one of those people. And I could sit and have breakfast and just like put some random thing like, oh, I'm eating Scrapple. What if I, you know, put that in a taco? And you'd be like, oh, that would be great. What if you did like a fermented kimchi sauce on it or something? You know, I don't know. I want to eat Scrapple tacos now. So I have a Scrapple taco (laughs) that I put on my menu. I'm a big Scrapple fan. And I have like a whole, I call it like my super secret Scrapple menu. So I do uh, Scrapple tacos. I do like a Brussels sprout slaw. And it's got some maple syrup uh, in the slaw and it's got hot sauce and, you know, it's kind of weird. That's kind of my style. But also at a time where I was trying to be super secretive or discreet about who I was on the internet, you know, I think at a time Rich and I met, nobody knew who you were, right? Like I felt like you were trying to lay low and have your alter ego. I was working at a job for a big company and I was afraid that I was going to get I don't know, like written up or fired, like that I couldn't be out there blogging. And then as I started my own business, I was side hustling. And I'm like, like, I can't let anyone find out who I am. So my avatar, I don't know if you remember, but I had a raw pig's head because I had butchered and I <laughs> held it up in front of my face. And like for I remember that like avatar. six years, that was my thing. And I would go to like star chefs in New York City and people be like, oh, you're the guy with the pig's head, you know? So for so long, Perfect Little Bites was this guy who blogged and had a pig's head as his avatar. I think a lot of it also was for me the insecurity of like not being a real chef. You know, I talked a lot to people on this podcast, especially chefs without restaurants. You know, I was cooking in a retirement community. And I feel like in real life, when I would lead off with that, people would say like, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm a cook. And they'd ask me where. And I'd tell them, they're like, oh, like they had decided that I wasn't a real chef because I was cooking in a nursing home, right? So this was a way for me to kind of hide. It was like, well, I, I perfect little bites. I blog about food and I have a personal chef business and that's just who I was. But I felt like if people saw my face, they could connect the dots and find out who I really was. And it took me a long time to say, you know, no, actually I worked at a place we did cool stuff. Um, and it is what it is. But yeah, I felt like we both had alter egos at the time too, where like nobody knew who our faces were. Nobody knew what our real names were. Uh, and that was also interesting to me. I've always been about just the adventure and what people do as a community. And I don't, I don't really care too much about people knowing who I am. I feel like it's um, in the context of being out there in the world. It helps with people understanding and, and being able to relate to you as a person. 
But I feel like, I don't know. I don't think it's important. I think it's just the work and the community and the sharing of ideas that is is what I, I, I was focused on and have always been focused on. But I mean, sort of, I guess, for people who need a touch point, that's fine. Um, but I, I still could care less. Uh, so so uh, in terms of some of the most uh, adventurous things you've done that worked out, can you maybe describe like one or two? Hmm. I don't know. You know, I just talk about, you know, I keep notebooks like chefs, right? So having those ideas and finding breakthroughs. And I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Um, again, you know, big fan of ideas and food, but I, I really want to make this bulgur wheat pudding that was like a rice pudding, but with bulgur. And I just couldn't get it done because bulgur takes super long to cook. It would scorch on the bottom. I couldn't get the absorption rate right. Um, and it was something I probably tried three or four times. And I just, you know, it was always in this notebook. And then when they posted about the ramenized rice, that was like the idea of, I think their, their post was like the seven minute risotto. And then it got down to like the three minute risotto, but the idea being that if you soaked rice in salt water with baking soda for 90 minutes, the, you know, pre-gelatinized the starch and you could cook risotto in three minutes. And that was my aha moment where I was like, yes, if I soak my bulgur in baking soda water for 90 minutes, then it will only take three to five minutes to cook. Uh, and then I do it with coconut milk and brown sugar. So you bring coconut milk and brown sugar to a boil, um, put the bulgur in, and it cooks in about three or four minutes, and then take it off the heat. And then it will continue to soak up and swell in the fridge. But it was Victimalization is such an underused technique. But just like having those aha moments of connecting the dots, right? Where it's like, I had no idea how to do that. I had an idea of what I wanted to do, but being open to seeing that one thing and saying like, yes, that's the technique that's going to get me to where I want to go. So I have notebooks filled with, filled with stuff that right now I don't know how I'm going to execute. So like that's one of those things that really worked out that I felt like, yeah, I'm glad I was paying attention and was able to put those two together. What, uh, what are you most excited about with spring coming? Uh, or it's here. It happened yesterday. Yeah. We're finally here. <laughs> uh, yesterday I started the garden. I mean, getting out there and, you know, tilling that out, pulling back the, we put cardboard on it so we didn't get a ton of weeds. And I'm just kind of like, I went to the the um, Dutch plant farm yesterday and got some soil and putting some new stuff down and turning that. And today I'm starting my seed. So when we're done today, I'm going to start putting stuff in. I'm a little behind. I, I should have started earlier, but we have time because it's Mother's Day before I want to put anything in the ground anyway. So starting to grow some stuff. I have like really awesome. I have a lot of seeds from uh, row seven, which I like. Like I love their squash and their cucumbers and their beets. Uh, and then I have the Bradford watermelons, which are my favorite. They'll be a little later in the season. And then last year they released uh, an okra, uh, like an heirloom okra. So I've never grown okra before and I don't know how it's going to go. So, you know, I'm starting some really cool stuff like that. And I guess that's grows, what I'm excited okra, for. Okra grows like a weed. You'll, you'll be, you're not going to be able to keep up with the pods. My kids like okra and they love pickled okra. My kids, you know, again, pickling is like the one, I don't know who doesn't like pickles. Uh, my kids would eat pickled <laughs> anything every night, like even quick pickles. Like they won't eat a steamed or even a roasted cauliflower. But if I just do like a curry brine and pickle that like four hours later and just put it out on the table, they'll eat that. So we just, you know, do a lot of quick pickles even in the house. That's fantastic. Tell, tell us more about your pimento, your love of pimento cheese and your adventures in that. 
I love pimento cheese. I don't know. I'm from the Boston area, right? And that's not like a northern thing. I, it was always like every once in a while someone would buy this tub of stuff. And it was probably <laughs> from that, you know, company who was, you know, racist or whatever. And we did away with them this past year. But um, yeah, you know, again, I'm trying to find my style. And I'm still having trouble with that. Like, as a New Englander, you know, I'm a white guy who grew up in the Boston area. My ancestors came over from England, literally on the Mayflower. But like, you know, I grew up in the 80s. We had a lot of casseroles and stuff. So what's my cooking style, you know? And everyone, like they have these cultures and cuisines and there's, you know, discussions about their heritage. It's like, well, I don't know. Like, what am I supposed to do? Make baked beans and like fried scrod all the time? Like, that's not interesting. Uh, But now living in the, the more of the South, I don't still consider like, Maryland, the South, but um, we're below the Mason-Dixon line. You know, finding things like pimento cheese. My wife's from Virginia. Um, her her parents are as well. Yeah, so that's one of those things I really fell in love with, and I love going down to Charleston and have had it a number of times. So, yeah, I play with pimento cheese all the time. My favorite is uh, smoked Gouda. Uh, and then I replace the pimentos with, like, the hot hoagie spread. So, uh, yeah, just, like, put a ton, of, a ton of that in there. And it actually was in the book Knives and Ink that I was in. They took that recipe um, so I've been in one book. I don't have my own book, but I did have a four-page spread in this book because I have tattoos, and they let me put a they let me put a recipe there, which was pretty cool. That's awesome. Pimento cheese is such a joy, and me being a Northern Jewish boy, pimento cheese was not a part of my upbringing whatsoever. Like <laughs> even some of like the cheese spreads that you find throughout the Midwest and stuff, you know, like cheese balls with nut. Like that wasn't something we had growing up, and thankfully. Uh, Allie and I, our business partner, Kenny Scott, is from Virginia, uh, from Virginia Beach. And pimento cheese is all over the larder menu. It's it's uh, it's everywhere. It's fantastic. And I love, you know, my cooking is not that highbrow. Like I've said, I'm not really interested in fine dining. Like I like going out and eating it. But there's something about things like that that are like homey to me. Like when I throw dinner parties for customers – it's not this very formal. I mean, yes, a lot of them have white tablecloths and fine china, but I, you know, I think having something like that out on the table as a communal thing to share, like that's more my style than doing this very intricate plated uh, entree that has like seventeen components. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, I remember once when um, uh, I had a chef taste one of those yogurt miso hot sauces that I made, and they said that I don't want you to be offended, but this tastes like the best pimento cheese I've ever had. And I was like, I'm not offended at all. So maybe that's, that's one thing you could do is sort of hybridize some, some Koji applications and into your pimento cheese adventures. I love that. I'm going to have to start playing around with that. You know, it's the same with like the scrapple. Like it's, you know, some people think of it's gross, but we have so many people around here who love it. And I make this scrapple dip i don't know rich if you've ever seen the scrapple dip but it's, yeah i have yeah it's it, like um, yeah i really want to i want to really want to try it it's like maryland crab dip but with scrapple instead of crab so like i just literally took a crab dip recipe and it's like pan sear scrapple and puree it up with like cream cheese and cheddar cheese and hot <laughs> sauce and old bay uh and broil it and it's like it's delicious and you're you know you either get it and you're down or you're totally offended by that and i'm okay with that <laughs> It's it sounds super delicious, and I definitely want to make it. Um, some people on on your show may not know what scrapple is. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, it's you know kind of like hot dogs. It's like whatever's left over, but it, it's the scraps. It's it's organ meat. Um, it has you know it 
usually has livers. It can have hearts. It can have kidneys. It's cooked down uh, like a cornmeal mush um, and then set in loaf pans. And then you just slice it and saute it. But some people don't even put organ meat. I remember I was at uh, Koshan in Philly and one of the, I guess the team from the Meat Hook in Brooklyn were there and I talked to them and they just like cook pork shoulder and do like pork shoulder and cornmeal. And I was like, you don't put any offal in there? And they were surprised that I suggested that. And they're like, no, we just cook down, you know, pork. Uh, so, you know, it has so many different regional variations. Oh, yeah. I love I love whenever I'm in the Carolinas getting a liver mush biscuit. And liver mush is a little too livery for me. Like it's a little uh, sloppier and spreads a little more and it's very heavy on the liver. That's I'll eat it, but that's not my favorite variation of it. Yeah, I grew up on chopped liver here, so I'm I'm all about the liver mush. I love chopped liver though. Like I am in, I'm always chasing like making a good chopped liver. Like I I make it. Uh, I think I do okay at it, but I still haven't nailed it. Where I'm like, this is the best chopped liver. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting food. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I, I, I've run two kosher kitchens. I don't know if you guys knew this. Like I've, uh, I've had some experience in the kosher cooking world. So I did, uh, cut my teeth there for, for a number of years. And I've spent about five years running like full on large scale kosher kitchens. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting work, isn't it? It's a, it's a whole thing. I was in Seattle and it was a retirement community. I went in and interviewed for a job and I didn't even realize it. I did the whole interview and then I was done. And the guy was like, so this is a kosher kitchen. Do you know what that means? I'm like, I have some idea. And he's like, do you have any experience? I'm like, no. He's like, well, you know, and he offered me the job as like the the sous chef kind of running the day-to-day operations of the three kitchens there. Um, and that started my education. It was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's different, but, but it just goes to show, you know, any, any cuisine is, is got its, uh, it's interesting aspects. So, yeah. So I always like to ask if you guys were a flavor, what would, what would it be? <laughs> I, I that's an easy one for me sweet cherries right on rich yeah uh so the traditional the the um the story of willy wonka and the everlasting gobstopper the transformation that would be my flavor <laughs> well that's <Yes>, rich <laughs> that that's a interesting answer there <laughs> Do you guys have any parting words or anything you want to leave us with before we get out of here today? Have fun cooking and be safe. I don't know. Just just keep trying different things and um, connecting with people who are making awesome stuff. Well, I love that. Good words. And I hope to see you guys relatively soon. Maybe this year if things uh, loosen up and we start to get back to normal-ish, that would be great. That would be excellent. Speaking of which, get vaccinated and be safe out there with your neighbors. Well, to all our listeners, thanks. This has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. A reminder that I've recently launched my Patreon. And if you love the show and want to support the work, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Chefs Without Restaurants. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.